Hey, couple of uh, things that we want to touch base on before we get started. We are celebrating what this weekend? Veterans Day. And as the father of one, it gives me a whole different appreciation when I, when I understand why we look and we say thank you for your service. Because for each person who has made that commitment, stepped up to serve, to um, I look at it as its own mission field. And so we realize not just for those that have stepped up and stepped in, but for the families who are supporting, encouraging, standing behind and fanning the flame. So let's do this. I want to watch a quick video just to kind of help us wrap our heads and hearts. And then we want to acknowledge our veterans here today and pray for them. So let's click on the video here. One time I was waiting for the bus with my son. I remember it was so hot outside and he hadn't had a nap. It seemed like the bus was never gonna come. And then this old man walked up. The hat he was wearing stood out to me. I remember that. My son was not giving in, but it didn't seem to bother the man. He looked over at me and said, looks like you got a real precious one there. I thanked him and looked down the street, hoping to see the bus coming. Honestly, I was probably just embarrassed by the way my son was acting, but before I knew it, he was off on his way. I couldn't help it. I felt compelled to say it. So I just called after him. Sir? Sir? And he turned around. I said, I just wanted to say thank you for your service. And I'll never forget this moment. He smiled real wide at me like he'd known me my whole life. Gently tipped his hat and said, you're very welcome. You were worth it. Amen. Can we take a moment and thank, honor? I know we've got some veterans right here in the audience. Come on, stand up. You guys hate it when I make you do this. Come on, David, Ramsey, Joe, Gene, Cheryl, Art, let's go. Freedom is not free, ladies and gentlemen. It takes people who are willing to step up and step in. So would you guys join me as we just take a moment and pray for them and for those who are actively serving. We've got some kids serving right now. Jesus, we want to say thank you for each person here standing. We want to thank you, Lord, for their commitment, for their faithfulness, for their willingness, Lord, like Isaiah, to say, here am I, send me. And Lord, we think about those right now who are on the front lines. We think about right now those who may be sent out to front lines, bases, and places all over the globe. We ask for your hand of protection. We ask for your hand of grace. We pray, God, that your presence and your promises would go with them. Lord, that you would uh, be speaking to them right now in the midst of a world that feels so overwhelming and chaotic. We thank you, God, that Lord, you are not bound by time and space, but you are the the good shepherd who leads them through the valley, who leads them by still water. So would you refresh? Would you encourage? Would you pour out your spirit on? We thank you, Lord, for the many who have served and who will serve. And we honor them today in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. You guys can have a seat. Thank you again for your service. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, let's open up our Bibles. We are in the book of 1 Thessalonians, so we started just a few weeks ago a brand new book. We wrapped up the book of Genesis, which was exciting because as we get into the book of Genesis, we are answering some of life's most difficult questions. And here as we get into the book of Thessalonians, we're looking at one of Paul's earliest letters written in the New Testament church. And so we kind of get this vintage 
picture of early Christianity as the gospel is going into unreached, untapped places. And we're asking the Lord to teach us, show us. We want to be that kind of church as we look back and see God's design, God's blueprint um, for the church. So let's read as we get into our passage this morning. Let's read these five verses. Let's start in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. We'll read to verse 10. Let's stand. I know I just had you standing a second ago, but we can all stand as we read God's word. How about this? I'll read the odd and we'll read the even or highlighted verses together. It begins, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and in Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. For your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything." For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You guys can have a seat. So, being a proud papa here of an active duty military kid, I remember when we flew in for what was called I-Day, induction day. And, uh, you know, as other kids are heading off to, you know, go for college, and uh, as Karis was heading out for what would be I-Day, we thought we were prepared, right, for what you're going to see. I'm going to send my kid off and see what, you know, God has in store, but you know, that day uh, was pretty overwhelming. It's pretty emotional. You know, as you watch here, um, hundreds, actually, it was over a thousand kids who in that induction moment are what we would they're, they're swearing an oath, right? They are acknowledging, you know, not just that, hey, I'm here hoping it all goes well, you know, but in that moment, as they swear to uphold the Constitution and defend it, you know, there's a moment that they're kind of signing away certain privileges and comfortabilities that most of us enjoy. And they're basically saying, hey, for this season of my life, I'm going to go where I'm sent. I'm going to follow orders. And let me show you a little clip from um, you know, um, what was going on there at, at I-Day, and I want to close as we kind of pick up on something here this morning. watching this transition from civilian, you know, into this military responsibility, uniform, haircuts, everything in that moment begins to change. And there is, they're all, you know, standing and you watch as, um, you know, they are called to, to swear an oath and that response, I do. And you're like, and then they turn them loose for a few minutes. We give them a hug. And all of a sudden they line up and as they're lined up to the doors of Bancroft, we watch as they go marching in. And then I think there's like a, a speaker on the door as they slam the door shut. And it's like, that's it. They're no longer yours. And for the next four years, you know, you watch as there's a transformation from going civilian to this opportunity of officer training these leaders and preparing them for what will be next, which will be a commissioning. 
And I say all of this because, again, most of you are like, hey, again, Veterans Day, this is exciting. This is, this is you know, a, a neat way for us to honor those who have served. But today, kind of like going back to Sunday school, remember the song, I'm in the Lord's Army? Most of you guys don't remember it. There you go. It was just me. Where was my yes, sir? Right? And, and today, you guys are going to kind of get drafted in. I want to help maybe parallel a little bit of this as we're looking at the church in Thessalonica and thinking about what it means to be on mission with Jesus. Because here, the first kind of step, like I was talking about with induction day, you're brought in, you're recognizing, hey, I'm swearing an oath, but then comes this process of training and equipping and getting all the resources, information, so that that day, that moment where you are what? Commissioned. Like the induction day, I'm swearing an oath, I'm all in, but then there comes a moment after all the training and preparation where we commission, we send them out with the training and the resources into those places of command, forward operating bases and all the different places where we need them stationed. And as exciting as we see that, I don't know if we often think about the same parallel in our own Christian walk. And as you stop and you think about that from the military standpoint, you go, oh, that makes sense. And you look at the disciples and you think about the fact that Jesus said what? Follow me. There's an invitation. There's an acknowledgement. And they're like, okay, we're hanging out with Jesus. So many meals, so many opportunities, places that they saw lives being changed, teaching and instruction, all of this time with Jesus. And then comes the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. But before he ascended, he what? commissioned them. And this morning, as we're thinking about our Christian life in the light of 1 Thessalonians, I am hoping, I am praying that the same kind of attitude, the same kind of commitment that both inspired the disciples will be inspiring us for the work that God wants to do in and through us as we head back out into the city. This we call the great what? Commission. And again, co-mission, if we think about the two words, right? There is a sense that we are on mission, but co meaning we are coming alongside someone else. Who are we on mission with? Well, let's go back and let's look at the verses, the context in which Jesus, as he was preparing to ascend, commission sends out his disciples, including you and I. It says, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Now, as we think about that great commission, we look at the instruction, the exhortation, not a suggestion, right? There is a go... But it doesn't just say go and just walk around, right? Go and make what? Disciples. We actually have an instruction. We have a mission. Um, care, uh, my wife and second daughter back east checking out uh, Liberty University. She graduates this year and she's doing a college visit. But since they're close to Annapolis, they went up to go see Karis. And uh, for Karis to be able to come down and go see him, she had to get what? She had to get permission. Her life is not her own. She has orders. And to be able to step outside of orders, she had to be able to say, hey, can I get permission to go do A, B, and C? Because if you just leave without getting permission, you're what? You're AWOL. And as Christians, do we stop and think about this idea like, am I following orders? We don't even like the word orders, right? Like, am I AWOL when it comes to God's mission for the church, God's mission for me? And so as we kind of just stop and we think about the Great Commission in terms of the disciples, but not only we have this exhortation to go and make disciples, and we have a direction of all nations, but notice that here comes this other invitation, this other blessing that we have. Acts 1.8 says, but you shall receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the end of the earth. As much as God has given us a mission, he's called his disciples to go and make disciples. We're like, that sounds very overwhelming. But he said, hey, you're not doing it alone, right? I have given you power, my spirit to dwell in you to help accomplish my promises. That's very encouraging to know that when we think about this idea of like, all right, Lord, 
I'm reporting for duty. What is it that you have called me to do as a Christian? When we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize that that term Lord isn't just one of an expression of like reverence, although it is. What am I saying? I'm acknowledging him as king. Like he has authority. I have submitted and surrendered my life as a Christian. Lord, where do you want me to go? What are my orders? And so as we kind of look at what's happening with Paul, as we look at the, the gospel going into Thessalonica, and we're thinking about even today, all right, Lord, what are my orders? We have a mission. It's very clear. Go into all the world, make disciples, and as we look at the tools, we recognize that we've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we've also been given, says, teaching them all of the things that I have commanded you. That's part of why we're here on Sunday. I want to be equipped. I want to be prepared so that I can bring a message of hope and rescue. And so as we get into our passage this morning, again, it's Veterans Day. So, man, I've got all kind of movies that I'm watching. How many of you guys have seen the movie The Great Raid? You guys are like, mm, maybe I don't know. And it's a true story. It's actually a true story about one of the largest, most daring rescues in U.S. military operations. 500 men rescued on that day. Let me show you a clip, and maybe it'll help trigger a memory here. After the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy invaded the island of Luzon in the aftermath of the Pearl Harbor attack, American and Filipino forces fought for three months along the Bataan Peninsula before finally surrendering. President Franklin D. Roosevelt then asked General Douglas MacArthur to leave his men behind, and the general made a vow, quote, I shall return. More than 70,000 troops remained in the Philippines and were captured by the enemy, of which about 500 men were sent to the Cabanatuan prison camp. The atrocious conditions the prisoners of war endured for years prompted the Allied forces to plan a rescue operation, and a group of U.S. scouts and rangers, along with loyal Filipino guerrilla fighters, were then assembled to retrieve the Americans. Commander Lieutenant Colonel Henry Mucci would say to his troops, quote, We don't leave one of them behind, not a single one. We attack tomorrow night. I think the date of January 30th, 1945 will be long remembered. Go with God and bring our boys home. They have not been forgotten. So as we think about what it must have been like, Right after, you know, the troops roll out, you're left behind, you're there in a prison camp and you're awaiting, hoping that at some point over the hills, there's going to be a rescue. There's going to be an operation day after day, month after month, you're waiting. And now it looks like there's no end in sight. These guys are getting ready to execute the prisoners. And there comes a, a sense to say, hey, we've got to go in and rescue them before, you know, even more tragedy happens. And so, again, as they talk about the Army Rangers and Filipino commanders going in there, 500 men get rescued. And I love that exhortation. Not one person, you know, gets left behind. I think that kind of gets us supercharged. It gets us, you know, as we think about the links that people will go to with that exhortation of no man left behind. Think about the things that are happening right now, still in the Middle East with Israel, and the thought that there are still people that are being held captive and we're, we're praying and you're asking, Lord, just someone get to them. Let's get these guys released. Let's and, and we can only imagine, it's hard for us to put ourselves in that position, but as you stop and you think about Jesus here in the synagogue, in a setting kind of like this, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads, and this is what he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and liberty to those who are oppressed. Now, ultimately, Jesus will say, and this is fulfilled in your day. And they're like, what? They're shocked. But we notice Jesus didn't go and overthrow the Roman army. He didn't go into different prisons and open doors. So what was he talking about as he's talking about this idea of communicating the gospel and setting people free? Is there a freedom that the gospel brings that goes even greater than just this idea of opening up prison, prison bars and opening up concentration camps? Is there a freedom that we can bring to people? Is there an enslavement? It's hard to know that you're in a prison when there's no bars. And when we stop and we think about what Jesus is 
is saying is he's opening up this passage and explaining that there is a fulfillment through him. When you and I think about communicating the gospel, am I thinking about this idea of rescuing people from prison, from this idea of being held captive? Oftentimes, again, we think about the idea of sharing the gospel, like, okay, I'm going to hand out a track. I'm going to invite him to church. I know our heart starts racing. Been there, done that with you. But as you and I think about the motivation, the links that we would go to say, okay, this guy's on my heart. Why do I want to talk about them? Do I think about the idea that in sharing the gospel and communicating the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, that I'm potentially helping unlock this prison door that the enemy has somebody in, and I'm helping rescue someone from this captivity of darkness and blindness and oppression. We don't always get to see those different things. And sometimes the people that are in there don't really see it themselves. But we recognize that part of the work, the power of the gospel is about setting captives free. In uh, Hebrews, uh, Jesus is described as the captain of our salvation. You know, it's just like if we were thinking about that raid, you know, and it's like, okay, who's there at the front of the line leading the charge? And that's how the book of Hebrews kind of describes Jesus. He's leading the charge. He is the captain of our salvation. That's part of how it describes his death and resurrection, what he did for us. When we think about this idea of Jesus setting us free from captivity, what is some of the captivity that the Bible describes that we are being set free from? In the book of Ephesians, Paul is describing, if we understand Ephesians, again, kind of like Thessalonica, we're moving into this Greek and Roman culture. And as again, they had the, the temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the world, and they worshiped in all of this idolatry. Paul's looking out there and he's communicating something important. He says about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended. What does it mean that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. This is an interesting passage to say the least. What does it mean that he both ascended, but first he descended? In Colossians, Paul would say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, talking about Jesus' death and resurrection, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, tri over, triumphing over them in it. So again, when we think about the message of the gospel going out into a pagan world, and we talk about idols and idolatry and all that kind of stuff, most people think about little wooden trinkets and that kind of stuff. But what's really behind the idols and idolatry? We see it all throughout the Old Testament. If you've been tracking, reading through the Bible and you're with us in Ezekiel, you see just God's heart against idols and idolatry. Why? Are they just wooden, made-up pots and clay? Or is there something actually behind it where you see the powers of darkness and the enemy? And so here, as he's talking about this idea of Jesus' death and resurrection actually disarming, having an effect on this idea of powers and principalities, when Paul uses that word, he's not talking about human powers and principalities. What is he talking about? He's talking about demonic powers and principalities that actually enslave people. Goes on to continue, Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 3, continuing with our strange passages this morning, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. We're like, okay, we're going there, Pastor Caleb, let's do it. For formerly who were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were being saved through water. What is he talking about? So Peter is going back and he's connecting what we read in the book of Genesis. We talked about this. You can go back to our story in the book of Genesis. But in Genesis chapter 6, we have this understanding that there was something taking place in this idea of demonic influence and activity. This idea that angels coming down, crossing over from their realm down into what was going on here on earth. And we see that whatever this correlation, connection between angels and mankind caused, as the Bible talks about this Nephilim, these fallen ones. And we watch as wickedness begins to explode and increase so much that God begins to prepare judgment that you and I call the flood. 
Now, those angels who were involved in that disobedience, the book of Jude and Peter says, were actually imprisoned down in a specific place in hell, being held in chains, like having crossed over that line of disobedience. But kind of like the Godfather, right? You know, you have these, uh, these mob bosses that might be in prison, but are still running their what? Running their crime empire. And it seems that the influence, the impact of these demonic spirits was kind of what you and I understand in terms of demons. That when Jesus died on the cross and it says that he both descended, there was a message, a declaration down to those who were kind of pulling the strings down into the deepest parts of hell. And he said, all right, your days are what? Um, anybody whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you have no authority, no power. Anyone whom I have set free is what? Free indeed. What does Jesus say in John chapter 8, verse 36? If the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. This idea that part of what Jesus' death and resurrection didn't just change uh, our status in terms of our relationship between us and God forgiven, but it also changes your status in the heavenly realms, even with demonic powers and all of the things that you and I have trouble even wrapping our minds around. And so when we think that the authority and the power of what Jesus Christ did on the cross actually gives us authority and power over demonic forces and spirits and powers and principalities, that that is part of what Jesus communicated and said, hey, when the gospel goes out and someone is converted, guess what? You have no authority over them. You have to let them what? Go. They are set. That's crazy for us to try to grapple and, and wrap our minds around. But just understanding that the death and resurrection of Jesus isn't just about my relationship between me and God. It actually impacts things even in the spiritual realm, which is part of why the Bible says in Romans chapter 116, I am what? I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is what? The power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation, rescue. That when you and I communicate the message of God, the power of who Jesus is, God in human flesh came down to earth, suffered and died, resurrected, that that message of power and authority of forgiveness, that message of power and authority to be able to change and transform us, the work of the Holy Spirit in us, to set us free from the power of sin and death, like that is a radical thought to think you and I are armed with that resource, that message and like I said before, it's hard to know you're in a prison when there's no one. There's a number of people who are caught in all kinds of enslavement, entrapment of the enemy. And they think that their pursuit of their career, their pursuit of all the other shiny things that the world has to offer is an enslavement, right? It's achievement. And yet when you and I get to bring the rescue, the message of the gospel, let me tell you, what this is really all about. Let me tell you who Jesus is and what he's done. What we're doing is we're bringing rescue. We're bringing freedom from that lie of sin and death. Notice as we get back to our passage here in Thessalonica, notice what Paul is saying, that the preaching and the teaching and the message had a radical impact in a world that was filled with idols and idolatry. So remember, we're talking about the Greco-Roman world and Thessalonica being one of the capital cities. And so it says, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you what? How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul was in Thessalonica 21 days. And there for 21 days, he is communicating the message of who Jesus is and what he did. But what we get from this, from this passage is something really important. Notice the process. What does it say? They turn from idols, what? To God. They turn from idols to God. You're turning from something to something. And so for them to be willing to put down their concept of religion and every facet of their life that was involved in sacrifice and, and all of the different things connected to the Greek and Roman gods, what, what would it be that would cause them to be willing to say, I'm not going to honor Caesar. I'm not going to offer sacrifices to Bacchus and celebrate in my parties. I'm not going to offer sacrifices to Aphrodite in terms of relationship. I'm going to honor the one true God. Notice what Paul must have been communicating is that what? Jesus is greater. Guys, this is really important. We are living in a time where it's really easy to get overwhelmed by the dysfunction and brokenness of our world. 
And there are things that we need to be communicating that break God's heart. There is idolatry and immorality aplenty in the world. It's part of why we see in the end, in terms of Jesus coming back to deal with all these things. And guess what? It's going to get what? Worse. But as much as we need to be communicating the truth of what's happening, if you're staying on the Titanic of this world, there is another message that is critical to being able to get them to turn their hearts and recognize this isn't going to satisfy. And part of what you and I need to be able to communicate that Paul did such an amazing job at was communicating that Jesus is greater. He started in the temple, started in the synagogue, not the temple, but the synagogue. And there, as he gathered around from the scriptures, he began to communicate kind of like what we see in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is filled. It's a great example of this message of how Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the sacrificial system. Jesus is greater than the prophets. All of these different things that are like, man, but I have this. Let me show you how that is a shadow and Jesus is the substance. And there, as you go throughout the book of Hebrews, he's making the case how Jesus is the fulfillment. Everything you're seeking in those things ultimately point to Jesus. Now, as you begin to think about as Paul would do that with the Jews, how do you do that in a world that is filled with its own pantheon and idea of God and gods, right? This is just a snapshot. What's interesting is you do study Greek and Roman culture. You see how, you know, the gods may have different names, but they're kind of the same person. They have their pantheon of their creator God and their gods that would govern and rule over every different aspect of life. You know, if you think about an agrarian society where you're doing farming and you're hoping your crops, you know, are going to grow, then it's like, hey, man, we're going to need water. We need the crops to grow. I better be praying. I better be making offerings and sacrifices to that God. You know, if I'm hoping that my business and all of that is going to go do well, I need to be offering sacrifices and honoring and, and, and serving, making sure that I get favor from that God. The same way people are superstitious today of like, oh, I got to do this or do that or I'm going to have a bad what? I'm going to have a bad day. You know, it's this idea of like having favor from the gods. And so whether you were going out to war or you were going out to work or you were thinking about your family, the gods were involved in every aspect and every facet of the day. It started in the home. They had their little figurines. That was the worship of their ancestors. And if you didn't venerate, honor the ancestors on all the right holidays, guess what? Their name begins to go out. That light gets extinguished and therefore kind of your whole family line just begins to, that's it. And so there was this thought, there was this idea, we have to venerate, we have to keep honoring and, and recognizing, and then you kind of step out to the si uh, society and the community. And like I said, every uh, guild, every union, you know, we have our unions today, right? And the reality is the same applied back then. If you were a part of the, the, the guys working with bronze or metal or leather, then you would be involved in the worship and the sacrifice of those gods. You guys all had to be involved in that together. And if you didn't, guess what? Well, you're out. Sounds still eerily similar to things today. And then ultimately, all of these things supported the idea of the worship of the emperor. And at that point, there was one Lord, and that was Caesar. And notice, as we even get into our passage today, one of the accusations being made against Paul is this idea that he's undermining Caesar. He's proclaiming another what? Proclaiming another Lord. And so here, as we look at all of these different gods in the facet of, a, 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 of every part of their life, how is it that I can communicate the message, I can bring the message of rescue as we look back at, at Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, how do we communicate the truth of who you are and what you did? What's interesting, we don't necessarily think of Jesus doing spiritual warfare as you read throughout the scriptures. We just kind of follow the stories and think it's really cool that Jesus walked on water or that he calmed the storm or he opened the eyes of the blind. We're just thinking, man, that is radical. That again points to Jesus's divinity. But again, we often look through scripture through the lens of our own what? Our own culture, our own time, our own eyes. If we were to kind of put on, you know, glasses that transport us back 2000 years and you were thinking of their idea, you know, of life and God and culture, 
You know, for the the people there at Jesus's time, their view of the whole Sea of Galilee, it's interesting. We see this in the book of Revelation in terms of the monster that comes up out of the sea for those that have read the book of Revelation. Because they had this idea that the dragon, the dragon of chaos that was involved in the whole idea of creation, that he lived there in the sea. And imagine as these guys were out in the sea and they were thinking, oh no, like if you get into the water, you know, that's like Satan and the dragon, he's going to come in and take you out. Like there was this real fear of that. So interesting when Jesus in Matthew chapter 14 sends the disciples out on the boat and as he's praying and they're out in the middle and a storm starts to come, what does Jesus come in and do? He's coming and walking. Now as cool as that seems to you and I, like he's not sinking, what is he also showing an authority over like their whole view you know in their world of like the spiritual entities and forces and powers it's like he's out there having control over the water you and I would think like Poseidon maybe you're going back having a little mermaid thought in your head right like they have this idea of like who's the god of the sea and the power and the authority and the dragon out there and yet Jesus is out showing absolute control absolute authority over that whole facet in their minds of that spiritual realm. So not only is he walking on water to say, hey, I'm God, but he's also walking on water to prove that I have authority, I have power over this thing that you guys are so afraid of. Take it a step further, and we watch multiple times, just like in that place as Jesus gets into the boat, tells them all, hey, don't be afraid, and the storm stops. We can think of a whole other passage in Mark chapter 4, and Jesus is sleeping in the boat, and they're all starting to freak out because what? The storm starts to come in, and if you've ever been on the Galilee, it's down there through the valley, and the winds start whipping around, and these storms come up, which again, they thought was associated with all kinds of evil and darkness and that kind of stuff. And they wake up Jesus and say, don't you care that we're going to what? Don't you care that we're going to die? And what's interesting, when you think of, again, like the storm gun, Baal, which if we fast forward and give him another name, might be Zeus, right? Thunderbolts and lightning, the God of the sky and all this kind of stuff. And then Jesus looks out at the storm and he says what? Be still. I don't think he said it like that. I think he said, knock it off. No, he said, right? Because in the, in the, in the Greek, it's actually a command. He's telling it to be quiet, to stop, right? Like we get shocked when a teacher at school is like, stop. And everybody's like, right? Or mom just gives a look. But can you imagine Jesus commanding the storm, the sky, the wind, all of that, and it what? Stops. So again, as much as Jesus is pointing to his authority over creation, if I put on my supernatural lenses and I'm looking through their worldview and I'm thinking about how the people interpreted the gods and idols and things of that day, imagine how I can begin to communicate that person who's got their altar set up like Zeus, who's in control of all these and say, let me tell you about the time that Jesus was in a storm and he looked at it and he said, what? Be still. And Jesus has authority over storms. I've talked about this one before, Caesarea Philippi, which is there at the gates of Pan, which for them, they looked at this as kind of the entrance of hell. When you think of the word panic, that's coming from this idea of the God of Pan. And there, as uh, at the foot of that place, at the headwaters of the Jordan, Jesus is standing, asking them, who do men say that I am? And then ultimately, the most important question, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus says, hey, and upon that rock... I shall build my church. We talked about this two weeks ago. And there, as he's standing in that moment, communicating about the truth of what the, the, the church is based on, the revelation of who Jesus is, he then turns back. And right there with this backdrop, and he says what? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it, taking their whole understanding of the demonic in that realm and thinking about the power and all the things that were associated. And Jesus is saying, look, and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the gospel and the church. And he's taking, again, their whole understanding of the supernatural and the spiritual and is communicating how the power of God, the presence of God, the purpose of God through the church, this will not be able to stop it. Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. I don't have time to get into a whole lot of this story, but it talks about Jesus going up to a high mountain. Same area. It's right after Matthew 16. The highest mountain just behind that is Mount Hermon, largest mountain in that range. You can go back and you can look at, if we were to kind of look at what some of the commentaries going back during the early Jewish intertestamental time, you know, like when the Septuagint was written, when they were thinking, okay, 
Remember that story about Noah and I talked about angels coming down and, you know, intermarrying with men. And you're like, man, that's a crazy story. Well, the early writings of that said that these people came down at the Mount of Mount Hermon. That's where they associated that whole mountain. It's like, okay, God's got his mountain in Zion. This is the enemy's mountain. They looked at that. There's actually still the highest temple in the world is at Mount Hermon. It's also a UN base up there, but that's another story. And so there, as they looked at that, kind of like the enemy's mountain, where does Jesus decide to go up and unveil his glory? Not just Jesus, but who else is up there with him? Moses and Elijah. You're starting to see a pattern here. These places where the enemy thinks, all right, this is where I'm worshiped. This is my base. This is my, you know, forward operating area. And then Jesus comes up and he's like, uh-uh. Right, And he chooses to be able to plant his flag and say no as he, uh, as he reveals part of his glory and this power over death because Moses and Elijah are there, right? And so again, we're seeing God and his power. We're seeing, again, the, we're seeing part of this power of Jesus' promise about being the resurrection of the life. And then as you go throughout his ministry, you see his power over blindness. You see as we get into things like Mark chapter 5, which was the demoniac, the guy who said that he had a legion of demons inside of him. And there as Jesus crosses over the sea and he has this interaction with this guy that the, the, the people couldn't contend with, they couldn't deal with him, put on shackles and chains and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And in one conversation, when he finishes, it says that he was sitting, he was clothed, and he was in his right mind. And once again, we see Jesus' authority, his power over sin and darkness. And then when we get into John chapter 11, again, thinking about the enemy's territory, and is there anything more powerful, anything more overwhelming than death? And there, as he waits, not just three days, as these guys had this different idea, like on maybe the third day, the spirit could reenter the body. Jesus chooses to wait one more day, just to make sure everybody knows he's what? He's dead. And it's overwhelming. Jesus, why didn't you come? Mary and Elizabeth just... And this is where we get that famous statement, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. And as powerful as that statement is, the next thing that happens is even more radical because he calls out from the tomb and he says what? Lazarus, come forth. And I don't know whether he was like hopping in a, as a mummy in grave clothes or, but it says, and he came out and they took the grave clothes off of him. There, someone who is dead is now called back to life. Again, tell me as you go down through the pantheon of the God of the dead, the God of the sky, the God of you can just name whatever idol and idolatrous thing you can think about in culture. And then I can look to a particular story and say, but Jesus is greater. Are you starting to understand the pattern of where I'm going? So when we think about for 21 days, Paul is in Thessalonica in a place that hadn't heard the gospel, a place that is filled with pagan idolatrous worship. And he was able to communicate both to the Jews and to the Gentiles this message that Jesus is greater. Ravenhill says this, entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. The more joy you have in the Lord, the less entertainment you need. That's a bold statement. And again, when I understand that Jesus is greater, the things of this world, the grip starts to loosen up a little bit. I don't have the same need, the same hunger, the same desire to say, if I don't climb the ladder of success, who am I? If I don't accomplish this or that, who am I? If this person doesn't say I'm beautiful or loved or accepted, who am I? When I have that acceptance in the gospel and who Jesus is, there's an entirely different sense of security, identity, that the enemy can't take away. There's a joy that Jesus gives that the enemy can't what? Take away, why? Because Jesus is greater. You see, when we begin to communicate that, we can begin to speak to the hearts and minds of the things that the enemy is trying to put out the world, say, this is what you're really after. You see, this is part of what you and I are doing. We think about our mission, our job in the rescue of the gospel is to communicate that truth that Jesus is greater. So we have this what, right? We have a job. Go into all the world and to preach the gospel. 
When you begin to think about the where, because some of you guys are like, okay, Caleb, I'm glad that you lived overseas. That's fun and exciting. You know, we can do the whole, you know, I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure that I'm headed out to Africa or Europe or wherever else when we get really overwhelmed about this idea of being on mission. But when we think about the where, notice, like with Paul, the message of the, the Great Commission, go unto all the world. You know, that idea of the world is the ethnos, people. For Paul, this thought of going to Thessalonica was a brand new place. He had done his first missionary journey, kind of right around that central location, right around Israel, Jerusalem, that whole kind of surrounding area. Remember, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost. And now he's taking that step further as we're getting into this idea of going into Greece, this crossing in to a place where the gospel had ever been. Paul's like, I've got this, I've got this desire, the man of Macedonia, I'm being called to go into this place. Why is he being called to go into that place? So when Paul gets kicked out of Thessalonica, he's there 21 days. He's going to go through Berea. He's going to end up in Athens, and then he's going to go into Corinth. As he's there wrestling in Corinth, thinking, man, this place is overwhelming and crazy, and maybe, I, maybe it's time to go. Paul knocks on his heart, and he says, I mean, God knocks on Paul's heart, and he says this. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or hurt you. For what? I have many people in this city. When you and I stop and we think about, okay, God, my job is to bring the message of rescue. Who am I bringing the message of rescue to? Here, as we look at this passage, God is saying, hey, there are people in Corinth, this place that has never heard, a place that is broken, dysfunctional, filled with idols and immorality. And in that city, I have people that are waiting to hear the message of the gospel. You're not done there. As you and I think about this idea of going out, going back to work this week, going back to your friends and family, wherever it is that God's going to lead you this week, do I stop and think just like God had prepared people in Corinth and every city that Paul went into, I have people in this city. Talked about this last week. Jesus said in the book of Revelation chapter three, verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and what? So there's people in your life that God is knocking on. He's knocking on the door of your heart. And he's given us keys to help open the doors to the captivity, the things that are going on in their life. And the message is Jesus is greater. Whatever it is that, that they've got going on in that captivity, there is this message of truth of who Jesus is and what he's done where I'm bringing good news. As we begin to think about just kind of God's picture and purpose, even going back into the Old Testament, we see that when he brought them out of Egypt, he brought them into the what? Brought them into the promised land. Why do we call it the promised land? Guys, we were just in the book of Genesis. Who did he make a promise to? To Abraham, right? He told Abraham, this is going to be yours as an eternal inheritance to you and your descendants. But then he told them there's going to be a season. You guys are going to go away to a country that is not your own. And then I'm going to bring you back. That's the whole prophecy regarding Moses. And in that time, God brought them up out of Egypt. And then he brought them to the border of the promised land. And you guys know the story. As we think about them going into the promised land, there were all kinds of obstacles in the promised land. There were giants and there were all kinds of uh, countries and nations serving all kinds of wickedness and immorality. But there, as God had called Joshua to lead them in, here at the book of Deuteronomy is closing. It says, Moses called Joshua and said to him in all the side of Israel, be strong and of good courage for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the, and, and the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. So what is Moses telling the people? This place that you are going, it's yours because I promised it to you and your descendants. And here's the thing. Because you were going to this place of promise, I am sending you both with what? Power and presence. Who's going with them? God. God says, I am going with you and before you, I've already given you this as an inheritance. I've called you to go into this place and to receive it. Now, the first time they were supposed to go, what did they say? Uh-uh, right? They looked and said, man, we're like grasshoppers. 12 spies go in, two were good, 10 were bad, another Sunday school song. But there as we go back and we recognize, man, there was a faithlessness to that moment. 40 years, they end up wondering. And now as they're preparing to go in there, there's this exhortation. Joshua is going to lead you there, but he's not going alone. He's going with the promise and the presence of God. Your God goes with you. 
And we think about that idea of I'm going in to inherit the promise. And we're like, man, how powerful must that have been? And when you and I think about this idea that the same thing that God says, right? This gospel, this message shall go out into all the world in Matthew 24, and then the end shall come. The book of Revelation says that in heaven, there will be some from every tongue, tribe, and nation. God has already declared he has people in every place at every time that God is looking for us to bring that message of rescue. And guess what? You aren't going alone. Go back to your Acts 1-8 for a moment and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the what? Which means in Fullerton which means in Anaheim and Santa Ana and wherever else the Lord is leading you to, you are not going what? Alone. He has called you. He has called those people to himself. And he says, and guess what? I have also given you power to be my witness. Notice as Paul describes what it was like to communicate for those 21 days. He says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. As you think about Paul's testimony saying, hey, as we went into Thessalonica, and we began to communicate the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, that Jesus is greater, the people began to respond both to the message and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what we were talking about earlier. Behold, I stand at the door, and what? And knock, do you believe that God is knocking on the door of the hearts of your coworkers? You believe that God is knocking on the door of the hearts of the places that he'll lead you into? And so when I begin to think, again, as a Christian, you're like, man, I'm here at church on Sunday. This is awesome to check. But when I think about Jesus, my Lord and Savior, when I think about Matthew 28, we talk about the great co-mission. I'm on mission with him. I am so grateful that you are here. I am so grateful for your guys' investment and involvement in this church. But guys, that is not the extent of yours and my mission and ministry as believers. Part of the reason that we have been saved from is we are saved for. And this work that we are saved for, just like these guys reporting to duty, we are sent out both with instruction to go into all the world, but not just with instruction, but you've actually been given power. The presence of the third person of the living God indwelling you. What is that power for? Yep, for overcoming sin, for sanctification, but also for this work of testimony, for this work of reaching people with the gospel, the power of God through the people of God to fulfill the promise of God. As exciting as Veterans Day in, we're so grateful, man, for those that have stepped up and served and lived that life of obedience and sacrifice. What a great example. We are thankful for that. And as we look at that example, we're asking today, Lord, what does that look like for me as a believer in Jesus Christ? Am I living in the light of that truth? Am I plugged in? God's power for God's people to accomplish his promise. Paul going into Thessalonica 21 days and what happens in communicating the message of the gospel, people are radically changed. That city ends up being a catalyst for reaching that community and a church is what? Established. And God has already given us a beachhead right here in Fullerton. There's a church that's established. And what are we doing with what we've been given? What is part of our mission as the church? Guys, you and I are more than conquerors. I'm gonna close with one last video and then we're gonna get ready for communion. And as you and I think about the gift of the Holy Spirit, the equipping and the power of the Holy Spirit, and what it looks like to live in the light of this truth, the indwelling power and presence of the promise of the Holy Spirit, let's kind of let these words sink in and then the team's gonna get ready to, to pass out communion. And as you take communion today, I really want you to think, just like we did and we're kind of looking at the beginning and we're taking that oath and we're thinking, okay, this is what it means to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus. But it's not just being in the relationship, it's also the commissioning, the being sent out. Am I living in the light of this promise of this relationship that I've been given? Let me